We turn in God's Word to uh, Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2, as we continue the theme of this morning, the aftermath of Christ's birth. Matthew chapter 2. We'll be reading most of the chapter this evening. Let's hear then God's breathed out word to us as his people. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem in the land of Judah, are by no means least amongst the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and asserted from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in that region who were two years old and under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Thus far the reading of God's word. Once again, ask for God's blessings upon it. Let's bow in prayer. I have a father. <clears throat> I'm reminded of the song that says, those who know it best like to hear it like to rest. And I'm put, with that in my mind, I'm happy to be here tonight and i think all of us here are happy once again to hear the gospel proclaimed we pray that you'll lighten our hearts that we may hear it and we may take it home and proclaim it to our neighbors we ask this in jesus name amen and amen 
Well, this morning as we looked at uh, that aftermath of Christ's birth on the 8th and on the 40th days, there, there is a note there of peace. There's a note of some tranquility. There's a note of obedience. There's a note of settledness. There is a note that reminds us of the fact that our Savior has indeed come and God has accomplished in him all his intended purposes. But perhaps your Christmas was not like that. Maybe your Christmas was messy. Messy not only because of the physical reality of scattered presents, of stepped-on toys that had just been opened and they lay shattered in pieces already. Messy, perhaps, because some of the gifts were obviously disliked and children's faces obviously displayed it. That there was a look not perhaps of wonder and bewilderment, but a look of, what is this and why did I get it? Perhaps that look also occurred upon the faces of your older children when they realized they did not get for Christmas what they had hoped for, so there was a face of sulking rather than a face of joy. Perhaps for you there was the messiness of, oh yeah, we showed up at the Christmas party and we forgot our gifts. Or we forgot Uncle so-and-so that we're always supposed to bring something for. Or we forgot to get something for Grandma in the midst of all of the busyness. Perhaps your Christmas was messy. Not even only for those things. Perhaps it's because Christmas is always messy in your family. There's always situations that just make Christmas uncomfortable. There are people who come that you wish didn't come. And they make life uncomfortable. There are people who should be showing up. There are relationships that are broken and severed. And Christmas is just a messy time of year. Well, if this morning shows us the peace and tranquility and the hope of Christmas, this passage shows us the chaos of Christmas. So we want to look at it tonight under three main points. First of all, a star. Secondly, a dream. Thirdly, a bloodbath. A star, a dream, and a bloodbath. As the passage begins, we are told uh, basically the same information that Luke has supplied to us in chapter 2 of Luke as well. The fact that Jesus is born in Bethlehem of Judea, there is a note here, however, of time now after, indicating a period of time has elapsed. We learn that there are visitors who come, and this whole thing, this whole section, is because they've observed a star. That is prophetic. The fact that there was a star is prophetic. It takes away... From us all, all the natural explanations that people try to give. This is not the merging of two planets at a particular time and point. The, the factual account that the Lord gives here in Matthew doesn't lead towards any of those types of explanations. This is a God-ordained star. This is a God-created light. This is a light of 
purpose. Not God using simply the natural elements of this world, but in his creative power bringing about a star to accomplish and to fulfill his word. Just keep your finger here at Matthew chapter 2 a minute and go with me back to the book of Numbers chapter 24. Numbers chapter 24. It's kind of an odd passage because it comes to us, this prophecy comes to us out of the mouth of Balaam, who is anything but a good guy. It's God who has to put into Balaam's mouth the words that are to be spoken. They don't arise from Balaam's heart, from Balaam's soul at all. In fact, it would be best to classify Balaam as a false prophet who now, under God's direction, utters truth. Numbers chapter 24. Go with me to verse 17. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Shaph. It's an interesting statement, isn't it? It's a reminder that this star, this one that the star indicates, is about a crushing. It's an interesting picture. It's a reminder to us of some previous texts that we'll look at in a few minutes. But, but there's the star, the star. God prophesies through Balaam that a star will rise out of Jacob. That one is going to come who is going to lead, who is going to shepherd his people. We cannot help but hear the words of Jesus. I am the good shepherd. I lay down my life for the sheep. But let's look at a couple of other passages. Go with me to the book of Isaiah. We'll start in Isaiah chapter 42. Isaiah 42. Verse 5. Thus says God, the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Note that we have this little title, not supplied by editors, to be sure, but this little title over chapter 42, The Lord's Chosen Servant. The picture for us of the coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. The fulfillment of which Christ himself reiterates in Nazareth. But there's the light. The light what? A light for Gentiles. A light so that Gentiles may come. A light so that those who are outside of Israel might see and come to the one who is God's chosen servant. Do you see the picture starting to emerge now? 
in Matthew chapter 2 as to what is happening? Go forward just a couple of chapters. Isaiah chapter 49. Isaiah 49. Verse 6. He says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Note, once again, the editor's title, the servant of the Lord. Who are we speaking of? Christ, Jesus, the one born in Bethlehem. He's going to be a light to the Gentiles to draw to himself those from the ends of the earth. One more, Isaiah chapter 60. Isaiah 60. Verse 1, arise, shine, for your light has come. And the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. Do you hear all those terms coming out of Matthew chapter 2? See, this is a prophecy. Balaam. Isaiah, many others in God's word prophesy that, that the one who would come would be a light to the Gentiles. Now comes the reality, Matthew chapter 2. The reality, the birth of the child, the birth of God's chosen servant, the birth of the Christ, the birth of the Messiah, the birth of the one who is to be the light of the world. But the reality God displays by a star. He places a star in the heavens, his star, the Christ star, the Christ light, makes an appearance. The understanding amongst those who were astrologers of the time was that whenever a new king was born, a new star appeared in the heavens. That, that was the thought, the belief. So at the birth of Jesus Christ, as they're understanding it, as these travelers understand this, they saw the star appear and they have followed it. Because that star to them means that a king has been born. And as you read the account, it's very obvious that the only people who see this star are the wise men, as they're named here in Matthew chapter 2. Nobody else sees this thing. I always get a kick, okay, somewhat a kick, out of, out of the pictures of this, right? The thing is huge. The thing is ginormous. There's little Bethlehem and the star is like eight times larger than the city. And it's like, who could not see this thing? Right? Why isn't Herod looking out of his palace going, what's that bright light that suddenly appeared? Nobody sees this thing. 
not the religious scholars. We don't read, you notice, that the shepherds were led by a star to a manger. They're not going, wow, a big star. That's not there. The town of Bethlehem isn't going, there's a star. Let's go see where the star is. Israel isn't seeing this thing. The rest of the world isn't seeing it, except for this group of travelers. God has opened their eyes to see that which he has created for them to see. They're the only ones who see it. They follow it until they reach Jerusalem. God appointed for the fulfillment of the words of prophecy. A star will rise. Yes, a star did rise. God did exactly what he said he would do. And that star is going to be a light to Gentiles. Because who, are the, who is this group of travelers? This group of who follows the star? Well, here in our ESVs, we, we use the term wise men. Some of your versions perhaps use the word magi. It's rather interesting, though, that they have seen his star in the east. In other words, they didn't, the star isn't in the east, right? Because then to travel there, they would have had to take ships through the Mediterranean. That isn't what's happening. They were in the east when they saw the star. The term east, as it's used in the New Testament in this particular time by the Greeks, refers to Persia and beyond. It refers to Persia. It refers to India. And yes, they knew China existed. And that is the east. They were in the east and have seen his star and have followed it. So if they're in the east, then perhaps what we ought to do is go to a piece of biblical information that was written when God's people were in the east. Keep your finger here. Now go with me to Daniel. The book of Daniel. We're going to go to chapter 2 of Daniel. And it's just this answer to Daniel in, in regards to God revealing Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Just, just listen to how Daniel speaks. Daniel 2, 27. Daniel answered the king and said, No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show it to the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, who has made it known to King Nebuchadnezzar. It's just interesting. If, if you want to define, well, who are wise men, let's go to Daniel, who lives in the east, who is in that neck of the woods, as it were. How does this get defined? Well, who does he include? Wise men are like enchanters. Wise men are like magicians. They're like astrologers. Kings, unlikely, unless we understand maybe princes fall into kingships. That could be so... You know, we three kings of Orient are probably eh, a little fuzzy in its theology, at least its biblical theology. 
the group of followers, wise men, as we're told, magi, astronomers, astrologers. How many? What does the text tell you? How many? Three, right? No, there's not three. Text doesn't tell you. Right? It could have been one. Well, no, not one because it's men, so it has to be at least two. Could have been 10, could have been 20, could have been 30. We don't know. The text doesn't tell us. It's just mentioning multiple men. How'd they get there? They rode camels, right? Find that in the text. Tell me, where is it? Show me the biblical evidence that they rode camels. Is that generally what they might have? Sure, but does it say it? No. No. Persia, we know, for example, was pretty good at horses. They had a whole postal system based upon horses, not camels. If these men are trying to get somewhere quick, my guess is they might have used horses and not camels. But a lot of this, you see, we just don't know. But we shouldn't make that which we don't know the realities upon which we rise and fall. Pastor Bob said there were more than three wise men. Heresy. No, that's not heresy. Right? It just means don't buy that Christmas card next year. Okay? Just don't buy that one. We're left with a lot of mystery in regards to the number, but see, that's not the point Matthew is driving at. Matthew is focused on this light to the Gentiles. Gentiles. See the light of the star, the prophetic word of God, and they come. Well, there is another thing we have to deal with out of Matthew chapter 2 in that regard as well, and that's the reminder of time. Once again, I noted that, that it's now after Jesus was born. That's a phrase that doesn't encompass right away or soon after. It means now after. A considerable period of time has taken place. A number of factors we have to take into consideration. They needed to journey. They needed to get from wherever they were in the east all the way to Jerusalem. Herod calculates that that must have taken them about two years. From the time they saw the star, and note the idea is that the star appears at the birth. So he calculates that it, it must have taken them about two years. Hence the order he's going to give in a few minutes. So that's one of the things we need to keep in mind. Secondly, note that they came to a house. Verse 11, not a stable, not an inn. They come to a house. They don't meet a baby. They don't meet an infant. They meet a child. These are very particular words that Matthew is using. They're not generic words. He knows the difference between a baby and a child. A child has age. A child is older. Jesus, by the time the wise men are there, is older. Up to two years old. Because that's what the wise men have told Herod as far as how long they have been traveling to get here. Plus, we had this morning, right? If they're there at the birth, we have 
the issue of the fact Joseph is in possession of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. He's a very wealthy man at this stage. Joseph is a righteous man, we are told. He's going to do the right thing in the right circumstances. He has to present a sacrifice. I'm wealthy. What do I have to present then? I have to present a lamb along with the birds. But he presents no lamb. Why? Because he's not in possession of those things. So the clearest thing for us to say is these wise men appear in Bethlehem some at least 40 days after the birth of Jesus. Certainly not at the same time there are shepherds in the fields abiding. But note how Matthew calls our attention to the reaction of people to this event. The reaction of the news of this star. This star that signals the birth of a king. First of all, note the reaction in verse 3. When Herod the king heard this, he is troubled. And all Jerusalem with him. Everybody is troubled by this news. The whole town is troubled. Notice they're not comforted. Notice this doesn't bring some great peace. This doesn't bring some great assurance. This brings issues of conflict. This brings some consternation. This brings some confusion. This brings, well, what does this mean? Probably for the people of Jerusalem, it means, what's Rome going to do once they hear we got another king? What? Army's going to come in and trounce us now. How many of us are going to die now with this announcement? Herod, probably thinking about only himself, is more concerned, I want to live out my reign. I don't need a new one for the throne. That's the first reaction. Second reaction, verse 4. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them, where the Christ was to be born. He told, and they told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. They have to inquire. They don't know. This isn't in the front of their knowledge. This isn't in the front of their brain. They're not thinking about for a star will come out of Jacob. They're not thinking about a light to the Gentiles drawing kings. They're not thinking of any of this. This is out of the way. This is out of the sight. In a sense, you almost see the picture, star, star, that's got to be somewhere. Let, let's start digging through the scroll. Finally, somebody finds Numbers 24, 17. Probably the guy who finds it is like, I got stuck with Numbers. It's not going to be in Numbers, nothing in the Numbers. It's just a bunch of Numbers. And there it is, stuck in a book that most people ignore, that most people don't read because of all the statistics. And yet there is God's beautiful prophecy that they find about the star, that they find about the city of Bethlehem. They find about the place in Micah where it's going to be. Yes, I remember there was a prophet. Bethlehem, Ephrathah. That is where it's going to be. But you notice, they're not really prepared for this. They're not waiting in expectation. Reaction number three, verse seven, is the insincerity of Herod. Calls in the wise men, finds out exactly when it appeared, then he sends them. You go search diligently for the child. 
When you've found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Now we know from the rest of the passage how insincere that is. Here is the birth of the king. Here is the birth of the light. Here is the birth of the star, the shepherd of Israel. And rather than it bringing forth sincerity, the reaction of men is to be insincere. John wrote in John chapter 1, He came to his own, but his own received him not. The insincerity of men. Crowds that are going to follow him during his ministry are nowhere to be found at the cross. Even his disciples scatter. But there is, thankfully, graciously, a fourth reaction listed for us, isn't there? Verse 10, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly. Going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Gentiles have come to the light. Gentiles on their knees in worship. Now we might want to pick apart, well, were they really worshiping or not? The text says they did. They worshiped him. They glorified the king. God opened the eyes and hearts and minds of Gentiles, brought them all the way to Bethlehem, bends their knee before the Christ, and they worship. The reaction of God's people to God's truth. But secondly, there is a dream in this passage. We are told that Joseph, not only the, the wise men are given a dream not to return, they obey, an indication of their true worship. But secondly, so is Joseph. He's given a dream, a warning. It's a warning. Leave, get out of here. Something's happening. The, the eighth day, the 40th day has, has turned. Shepherds coming, glorifying and praising God. A Simeon speaking out in blessing. And Anna telling everybody about the redemption of Israel. Wise men on their knees in worship. Something has changed. Something's moving. And the dream is a warning. A warning that violence is coming, that hatred is coming. Joseph, listening, obediently moves. And how is the providence of God? Right? The 40th day, they can barely afford a sacrifice. God brings Gentiles to Bethlehem with gifts of gold, of frankincense and myrrh. Joseph and Mary are now well supplied, not only for a journey, but for a stay in Egypt of up to four years. God's providence is at work. 
But thirdly, in this passage, we see a bloodbath. Notice the response of Herod. Verse 16, then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. Herod the Great, who this passage is speaking of, had a habit of doing this, becoming furious, becoming angry, particularly at any rivals to the throne, even anybody he suspected. He thought at one time that maybe the high priest that he had replaced, he had gotten rid of the true Levitical high priest, replaced him with another one. He thought sometime he was going to go on a trip, and he thought maybe that old high priest might try to get his job back and usurp Herod's position. So he invited him over for a game of water polo. That turned violent, and they drowned the priest. Oh, and then he rounded up all his uncles, all his nephews, all his sons, and all his cousins and had them executed. Just so there was to be no rival. Caesar Augustus, okay, after having met Herod and knowing of Herod's reputation, made this statement. I would rather be Herod's pig than his son. Meaning, that the pig had more chance of survival than the son did. That's how brutal this man is. He's been quiet now for about 20 years. Quiet in the sense he's been building the temple, he's been building cities. That, that kind of former way of life had kind of passed away. He had things settled. But as soon as a rival to the throne comes, notice how he responds. He becomes furious. That hatred. Against the baby? No. Against the king. Against the Christ. Against the anointed. Against the Messiah. So he issues this horrific order. Have all the babies in Bethlehem and in the nearby territories that are males and our two years are under executed. How many are killed? We don't know. The number is not supplied to us. From what we know from archaeology, Bethlehem was a town of roughly about a thousand inhabitants at this time. Those who do statistics and figure these things out estimate there was probably at there would be likely anywhere from 12 to 24 young boys in that category. Now at first you hear that, you go, oh man, I always thought there were hundreds. I guess that isn't so bad. Listen to yourself, is it really? Would not be if there was but one child in Bethlehem who was executed under this order, horrific. See, I think it's sort of the dulling of our senses in American society, right? You know, if there's only a thousand abortions somewhere, well, you know, that isn't so bad. I mean, you know, I thought it was in the millions. Yeah, let's try 40-plus million. Let's try that number to get the reality of it. But is not just one too many? So when we think of a dozen or perhaps two dozen families in which the brutality of Herod is now visited upon, because of his anger. Oh, but there is more going on, isn't there? 
you and I both know that there is more than just Herod's anger. There is somebody else's anger at work. This is Genesis 3.15 at work, isn't it? This is the serpent. This is the devil. This is Satan at work, making use of Herod's anger to bring about the attempted execution of the one who is the son who is coming to redeem them people. Them people who were made higher than me. This one is coming to redeem those low lifers. The whole rebellion of Satan, the whole anger of Satan comes back in this picture once again. He is going to seek to destroy this Messiah, this Christ. So let's kill all the boys just to make sure we get him. Christ's coming, you see, brings about hostility. The promise that God makes in Genesis 3.15 is a promise of violence, isn't it? There's a promise of crushing. There's a promise of bruising. It's a promise of what the reality of Christmas really brings. The messiness of our lives. Christ's coming brings a sword. Yes, here in this passage, it's the literal sword of Herod. But Jesus is the one who says in Matthew chapter 10, I came not to bring peace, but I came to bring a sword. Here's the reality of Christmas. This will be opposed. This will not be celebrated. This will be stuffed. This will be quieted. All sorts of attempts will be made to keep the Christ from being known. Christ's coming brings adversity. 2 Timothy 3.12 We are told that all who are followers of Jesus Christ will be persecuted. It will happen. It will occur. Our brother's prayer reminder this evening is a reminder of that. You speak for Christ, you will be laughed at. You will be mocked. Remember what I said this morning? In regards to, to Anna going out and how was your Christmas? It was great. It was great. I celebrated the coming of the, my Redeemer. I celebrated the coming of my Savior. How do you think that's going to get? What response do you think that's going to get from the crowd? You think everybody's going to go, oh, wow, that's really nice. Is there going to be laughters and snickers and there's going to be mocking and ridicule? Lift up the name of Jesus in the public square today. And what happens? You're mocked. You're laughed at. You're ridiculed. It all began, you see, at Christmas. The aftermath. The bloodbath. This is the reality, isn't it? But the reality that looks beyond this is the fact that in all of this violence, in this aftermath, in this messiness, in all of this blood spilling, 
inherits victory. Even that passage that's quoted here, this passage from Jeremiah, a voice was heard in Ramah. Did you ever read the next verse? The next verse after that, the Lord says, but don't cry. Don't cry. Why? Because I'm going to bring your children back to you. It's a promise of hope. It's a promise of victory. It's a promise of peace that God will indeed bring through the bloodbath that's going to occur upon the cross. That Satan will be crushed. That Revelation chapter 19 will occur. Christ will come as the victor, pictured in that verse, in that chapter, as the rider on the white horse who is going to come with the armies of heaven. And what shall he achieve but a final, complete victory? Yes. Yes. The aftermath of Christmas is a bloodbath of Satan seeking to destroy the Christ child. The victory belongs to the child. The defeat of our enemy, the devil, occurs. The defeat of our sin, of our guilt, the defeat of hell, of the grave. O oh, grave, where is your victory? O oh, death, where is your sting? Victory belongs to the Christ, Jesus, who ever lives and reigns and rules. Yes, it's going to be messy, but the victory is his. Amen? Amen. Father, we do thank you for the promises of your word, even in the midst of the conflicts of life. We hear, Father, again of, of a shooting. We don't know what's all behind it. We don't know what, if this was something of a personal nature against family members or whether this was an uprising against the church. We, we don't know. But, Father, it certainly illustrates for us that we live in a hostile word to the faith, to Jesus Christ. But we don't need a church shooting to remind us of it. We see it in our world. We see it in our society. We know it in our own hearts. There's a war going on. And Father, we are just grateful, even as Paul know and knew and experienced. Who will rescue me? Who will rescue me? Thanks be to Jesus Christ, who sheds his blood so that we might know the victory forever and ever and ever. And God's people say, Amen.